Welcome to Coming Home, a podcast expanding our sense of home and community through collective living. We are your hosts, George and Travis. Today's episode will be a little bit different from the interview format you can expect to hear in season one of Coming Home. To talk about things like collectivity and home, we first need to situate ourselves and our future discussions in place, time, and space. This episode is so foundational that we're calling it episode zero. We want you, our listeners, to be able to come back, to come home, to this episode at any time to refamiliarize yourself with who we are, where we are, and how we want to approach learning these subjects together. Sometimes it can feel intimidatingly complex to talk about. You know, we're literally speaking in a language of Western colonization. We don't speak the language of the communities that have stewarded this land. I was conditioned under the colonial system as I think pretty much most people were and are only through the voices and incredible strength and experiences. I become aware of the deep lies and injustices that I was told throughout my experience in educational institutions, but also through all the the ways that we get knowledge through social media, through our social spheres, through the way that we move about the world, through the way that we relate to things. Honestly, I didn't even center relationships until the past five to seven years. My door in was climate crisis. That for me was my inspiration to originally move to Vancouver for one, or move to so-called Vancouver, but also to question the trajectory that we're on. That inquiry has led me to realizing that our relationship with the earth, with the land, with the climate is out of balance, which I think many people know now, but also that is inherently tied to all relationships, most importantly, probably ourselves, and seeing ourselves as separate from the climate system, seeing ourselves separate from the plants and animals, seeing ourselves separate from one another. And that's reflected in the way that we dehumanize ourselves. We dehumanize each other. Those realizations allowed me to center relationships. The people who know the most about relationships to the land are the indigenous people who are still living on their ancestral lands, who are still practicing their ancestral ways of knowing and being in resistance to the global, modern, Western capitalist dysphoria that we are currently living under. I think all of that is just to say that it does run deep. It is complex. It's all connected. And it's also quite simple in the sense that we are in a crisis of separation. We are in so many different crises. I think the root of where we're at today has so much to do with our histories as individuals, as settlers, as people who have been displaced to varying degrees, to people who have been traumatized. We have to face that if we want to change and evolve, which I think is what is needed now and which is happening now. People are beginning to evolve collectively 
And I think acknowledging and seeing that trend of where we're at and seeing so-called Canada come to terms with Indigenous genocide, with colonization, with resource extraction, with housing crises, you know, this is the inspiration that I have to bring our relationships back into focus and to heal those relationships. And I think one of the greatest tools that I've been given to heal my relationships is and has been living collectively with people. And I mean that physically sharing my home with people, which I do now, but also I mean that with all my relationships with my family, with my chosen family, with my coworkers, with my friends, with strangers, with my neighbors, with the animals, the plants, the water, the beings that sustain us, the earth. All of these are relationships that I and we are trying to collectively heal from. And so relearning how to live collectively, how to come home to the realization that we all share the same planet, the same space, the same air, the same climate system, the same resources that sustain us. There are so many ways we share this planet and a common humanity, and yet we all have different standpoints composed of rich histories that influence how we study and talk about tough topics, standpoints that influence how we co-create knowledge, how we see ourselves in relation to others, and really how we go about our daily lives amidst all of the mundane and extraordinary interactions along the way. On that note, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Travis. I use him, them, her pronouns, depending on the context. Very fluid that way. My story began on an island called Ambon in a province called Maluku in a country now known as Indonesia. I was born to my mother, who is ancestrally from Ambon and has been for hundreds of years in her family. My father met her as he was sailing around the world. He and my mother settled here on the unceded ancestral territories of the Semiamu First Nation back in 97, which was just after I was born. We immigrated here due to uh, ongoing religious conflict that ended up erupting into war on the island of Ambon. My father came here to so-called White Rock because his parents, who are British, Irish, Scottish, moved here. My dad's parents settled in White Rock after World War II, where they raised him here. So returning here was part of us requiring stability, having my dad's family members we could rely on for support in the midst of immigrating to a new country. Throughout my childhood of growing up here on these territories, a lot of support came from collective situations, particularly the church, where my mother finds a lot of her 
faith and it's also a way for her to connect with other people. As I began to challenge myself with the history of the church, with the history of this land that we were occupying and living and enjoying, the history of the peoples of this land, and my positionality and the privileges that I've been able to enjoy, despite feeling like oftentimes I don't even have that much. <laughs> But being able to access all the things I have throughout my life growing up here, especially across cities from White Rock to Vancouver, the amount of knowledge holders who have taught me about what it means to listen and learn and unlearn and how I can offer my strengths towards reconciling the injustices that have been done unto the ancestral stewards of these lands, learning to be an ally and an accomplice, and how all of that ties into this illusion of separation from one another. And I think collective living is a way of pulling through that illusion to remind ourselves of one another's humanity and the ability we have to reach out and support each other through resource sharing, through speaking, communication, through learning how to share space in a way that is compassionate and prioritizes Indigenous stewardship and their stories and their protocols, while also honoring our own ancestral lineages and the roots of their collectivism and how they were able to operate and sustain villages of people before the capital colonial priorities of our contemporary world. I think those are values that are so deep ingrained in us. And there's a lot of traumas to unpack as to why we feel like it's so hard to share space and share compassion with people from different backgrounds and identities. But we can do that. And when we're relearning how to live collectively, at the end of the day, we're just reconnecting to those core values that sustain us and have sustained our ancestors throughout tragedy and crises time and time again. Very grateful to be here on this land and to be curating this space with my friend George. My name is George Song Birking. I use he, him pronouns. I was born and raised in upstate New York, in the city of Rochester, which lies on the shore of Lake Ontario. My father is a fifth generation English settler. My father met my mom in China in the late 70s teaching English, and my mom is Chinese. I'm really inspired 
by my parents. I guess I sort of see myself as a product of their resistance to authoritarian forces in China. They actually wanted to start and raise a family in China. And when they started seeing each other, there was a lot of resistance to their relationship. This was during the student democratic protests that were leading up to Tiananmen Square massacre. They had been getting harassed and pressured to the point where it was safer for them to return to the United States where my dad had family. And so they left China the year after they left. What they had suspected was right, which was that Chairman Mao would bring down the Iron Hammer. And yeah, Tiananmen Square massacre happened where the border, I believe, closed for a while after that. It was unsafe for democratic ideas to be existing in China. And so that's a big part of my story and my understanding of why I grew up in Western culture in the U.S. I guess I moved to what is now known as Vancouver on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh peoples who have lived here since time immemorial. Uh, I have been living here for just over a decade now. This place and the communities that I've met here, I've grown to become a part of, and they have deeply changed me in my understanding of how I relate to a place to uh, people, and most significantly to myself. About just over six years ago, I was looking for a place to live, and I had found that a lot of my friends had moved away from Vancouver. Luckily, I landed in a shared house that I found off Craigslist. In that shared house, I met a group of amazing people who have become my chosen family over the past six years. We've done things like move together twice, cook meals for each other. We have amazing friendships. We work on projects together, care for each other when we're sick. We clean up after ourselves so that we can share space. We have difficult conversations. Things get messy. We have conflicts. We work through them. It's hard and it's totally worth it. Over the years, this experience has been one that I've wanted to share with more and more people. I've wanted to bring more people into my home make people feel like a part of our community that extends wherever. The relationships, the learnings that I've gained from this community, I've reflected back to my family, 
my friends, my coworkers. It's been a grounding force in my life like none other. That's something that I really want to share with people. And another aspect of living this way has been the realization of how rare and stigmatized living with your friends can be as you age and get older. I just turned 29 and I don't know that many people who live like this. I know a few. As I get older and I look forward into what the next 10, 20, 30 years might look like, I find myself wondering what community could look like for me. I honestly don't see that many models except for what I've learned about the Indigenous peoples here and also elsewhere. I'm so curious to invest in a future where I can continue growing my community in the ways that I have and to do it in a way that is sustainable, that is transformative, that holds relationships, multiple relationships with care, with commitment, with accountability. And I see that Indigenous peoples have been doing that. And I think this podcast is a big part of my process of exploring what collective living can and has looked like for peoples in the past, but also what it can bring as we grow collectively into a future. I don't remember much about when I was born in Ambon, but I went back to visit when I was 10 years old. And it is very much like a hot, humid, <laughs> and moist tropical paradise that's also been slowly succumbing to the effects of ongoing colonization mostly through the amount of pollution that's present everywhere from the sea to all the gutters around the main city but the parts of it that really remind me of how my mother grew up and how her family lived was my oma ita's village which was on the other side of the island away from the main city and this village had been rebuilt after the war but the way that the village operated was very much an open door community kind of system with a shared chicken coop in the middle it's all just dirt roads and huge lush jungle surrounding it there's a pond that is frequented by people in the village 
and I would go swimming there to cool off. And in the walls of, the, of this pond, there were hundreds of these holes where eels lived in, and they would come out and swim with you, especially if you had eggs you could offer them. And they would just like brush up against your leg. And I loved it as a kid for some reason. I just remember feeling an overwhelming sense of people looking out for one another there. As I've come to reflect on my experience being there as a child, I've learned a lot since then, especially from the indigenous peoples of the Coast Salish nations that I've been growing up around because of the way that they hold the truth of their ancestry and their storytelling so firmly and the way that they continue to practice those beliefs and pass them on. And that's something that I felt missing from both of my parents' ancestries because my mother was raised Christian in Ambon. Our whole family was. That is but a relic of colonization from the last empire that had left its mark. There's so much more that I've started to learn about about the island, about my mother's ancestors prior to colonization, but most of it has just been through Google and trying to read settlers' accounts during the spice trade of how these people lived and how they communed. And that is another part of my curiosity into learning about all the different ways people commune and live collectively and share roles, share space. When you were talking, I was like, oh, wow, there's keeps going. I I thought of things, a lot of different ways that I could describe my upbringing. I feel like I was primed with my Chinese family upbringing for collective living in a lot of ways. I don't know. I grew up in a school where everyone, well, my friends or whatever, like were white pretty much and grew up in like white suburban sort of family homes you know, everyone has like their own room and they get presents. They celebrate all the holidays. They get presents at their birthday, play video games, eat chips and snacks. And I was like, I didn't play video games. I didn't have snacks. I didn't have my own room. Didn't have friends over because of all those things. Ownership over space and belongings was not really a thing in my family. It was just like, oh yeah, everything is shared and communal. Like I didn't, I just didn't own anything. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think we'll, we'll try to unpack that. At our house, our computer was in our kitchen. Like everything was just in the kitchen. Mm. And then our living room had like two couches and a TV, but pretty much everything was in the kitchen. We have other spaces in the house, but it's just like the center is the kitchen. So we just crowd in, even though it was like a tiny, tiny room. But we didn't like do sit down family dinners or anything. I just like get my food and then go watch mm -hmm. The Simpsons every night. 
I relate to all of that. Even what you said about birthdays and and yeah, sharing a room. Me and my siblings shared rooms well into our teen years. And then the things about gaming or even having access to internet, I remember, took a while. <laughs> took took a while. And especially even just relying on a family computer, even when that became acquired. I love this YouTube channel that is named Confused Byproducts of a Misinformed culture that resonated with me especially in my like teenage years when I discovered it I just love that concept or phrase and I feel like it described my upbringing of like living in a way that was not reflected in the world around me and then slowly sort of aging into a process of assimilation into like mainstream culture through education, through work, through friends, through money, livelihood, became closer and closer to what I understood to be normal. <laughs> and then over the past like five to seven years, I've been unlearning all of that, which mm. is a lot of work because there was so many years of conditioning myself to fit in and belong to the dominant culture of all the things. I know, for instance, I grew up kind of eating my mom's food, which was mostly Chinese food, but then we all wanted American food. So she would westernize <laughs> the Chinese dishes so that we liked it. it would it be a spaghetti with soy sauce <laughs> stuff like that and then now in the past couple of years i discovered i started making crepes but similar to like xiaobing which is the green onion pancake so i would make the crepe but then chop up onions and green onions in it and then eat it with soy sauce dip it's amazing i actually haven't done that in a long time but i was like this is this is the new culture and then also creating new traditions there's this type of ramen called Indomie, and it's this Indonesian fast food ramen. And just having that with eggs and then spinach and like some other stuff. Oh, rice, of course. My main go-to still is rice and eggs. My mom will sometimes cook her Indonesian dishes, and I am floored by all the spices she incorporates. But it is very different from just anything else the comfort food is so comfortable <laughs> we could also talk quickly just about what could we do other episodes on there are developments now where people are building the architecture to prioritize communal living styles which is super interesting there are ways that food systems can be collaborative and especially involve indigenous plants as food and medicine and as a way to cultivate relationships between neighbors and start creating food sovereignty within neighborhoods. Talking with people who have experienced collective living for decades in Vancouver, digging into historical examples of collective living that have sustained populations throughout 
different ages and societal shifts. I think my favorite, though, is the intersection of different topics. Like, not one, but let's pick two, like something like AI and indigenous culture. And let's find the intersection between the two. I kind of see meaning as this web of terms and concepts, and I want to follow the intersections. We are excited to see where this project goes and what kinds of conversations will come about. This project has been years in the making. Thank you to Travis for coming alongside me as a co-creator and co-host. There are so many ways we can grow Coming Home podcast together, and we hope you, our listeners, can help this project take shape. Stay tuned for episode one, a conversation with our good friend Julia about the transformative potential of collective living she's experienced at many different scales. Julia is hilarious and incredibly engaging, and we had a great time talking and learning a lot from her, and know that you will too. She has so many mic drop moments, it's incredible. She really does. Stay tuned for our next episodes and find us on Instagram at cominghome underscore podcast. We'll post highlighted excerpts from our conversations there. Feel free to DM us or send us an email at thecominghomepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, and episode ideas. We'd love to hear from you. The Coming Home Podcast is independently written and co-produced by George Birking, me, Travis Clifford, and Dania Clark. Tanya Paholak is our social media coordinator, and we thank Adrienne Avendano and Aidan Logans for audio support. And, of course, thank you, our listeners, for joining us. See you next time.